Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon This is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. On December 6th, the Multnomah County Local Public Safety Coordinating Council held an event entitled Violent Crime, Myths, Realities, and Interventions That Work. Ames Grawert is Senior Counsel and John L. New Justice Counsel with the Justice Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University. It's important to note that there all are other ways to measure crime. Uh, the National Criminal Victimization Survey is a survey of many households uh, intended to be a nationally representative sample conducted each year um, that asks people quite simply what their experiences have been with um, uh, non-fatal crime. So um, assaults, um, burglary, larceny, et cetera, offenses like that. Um, <clears throat> the NCBS offers a somewhat complementary picture of crime trends through 2021, uh, but you'll note that it doesn't agree quite entirely with uh, the FBI's data. It shows a somewhat of a decline in crime in 2020. Um, it's, it's worth noting that there are some methodological issues with the NCBS as well, because it's a survey and conducted in 2020, the pandemic year. Um, it was uh, fairly difficult, they conceded, to get an accurate survey. But it, it provides a sort of asterisk and sort of way of um, understanding some of the complexity around the actual experience of crime and criminal victimization in the United States. Um, I'm going to talk next about um, some of the broad trends we've observed uh, nationally. But first, just a quick look at Portland. Um, we pulled together data from the uh, police bureau uh, and, and focused in on just a couple of offenses that we think might be particularly important and salient to this group. Uh, as you'll see, uh, homicides in Portland jumped sharply in 2020. That continued through 2021. Um, the increase appears to have slowed in 2022, as it did in 2021 nationally. Um, this is based on a comparison of uh, January to October data 2021, um, the same months 2022, just year over year. Something you might note here as well is the fairly sharp increases in motor vehicle thefts. That unfortunately is a national trend. Uh, Portland is, is far from uh, unique in that sense. Uh, based on some research that we've done, we've seen that motor vehicle thefts uh, tend to go hand in hand with more serious offenses because, uh, for example, there are many cases where people will steal an automobile and then use it to commit a more serious crime. Hence, the two are somewhat linked sometimes, at least according to experts we've spoken with. Um, and also motor vehicle thefts tend to be reported more to police, uh, dealing away with the reporting bias that affects other types of property crimes. Um, but something to keep in mind when um, evaluating Portland data in the national context. So now to give you a little bit of a deeper dive onto what the crime data say. First of all, I'm sure you all have heard narratives that try to paint rising crime, especially in 2020. And again, we have the best data here on 2020, so I'm going to dwell on that year as opposed to 2021 for the time being. Um, you've undoubtedly heard narratives that try to paint rising violence in 2020 as a, a coastal issue or as a city issue. Uh, in fact, the data show that it is neither. The data show that uh, when crime rose in 2020, it rose in all regions of the country, um, it, especially as pronounced, as you'll see here, uh, in the Northeast and the Midwest, but uh, to a very significant degree in all regions. 
uh, and also in all population groups. Um, so there's been some recent coverage illustrating um, just how sharp the increase in violence was in rural communities and how um, communities have strained under that impact as well. Um, but that, that wasn't really discussed until fairly recently, and I think that's an important caveat. Uh, we, we should not understand uh, rising violence post-2020 uh, as an urban issue, as a um, coastal issue. It's an issue affecting the entire country. Uh, another thing that we can note is that uh, this does not appear to be a political issue. Uh, sort of simplistic, crass explanations that try to paint violence as a red or a blue issue just don't hold water. Um, analysts have uh, compared rising crime in 2020 from, quote, blue cities to, quote, red cities and found no material differences. Um, it's also worth noting, as uh, the organization Third Way pointed out in a recent analysis, that um, uh, the South has a very high pre-existing rate of violence, especially of gun violence. Uh, I think it's it's wrong to try to paint political narratives based on an issue as important as public safety. Uh, and I, I hope this uh, underscores the importance of reaching for um, more substantive uh, causal explanations and therefore solutions. I'm going to talk briefly about the role of socioeconomic hardship. Um, in a recent analysis um, that uh, Patrick Sharkey, a sociologist out of Princeton, wrote up, um, he showed that even as crime declined significantly from 1990 to 2014, the overall concentration of crime and especially the overall concentration of violence inside our cities did not change as significantly. So you can think of it as sort of a, a rising and falling tide. Uh, when the tide of violence fell in 1990-2014, it fell roughly the same uh, everywhere, uh, meaning that uh, areas that were especially violent remained especially violent relative to the remainder of the city. Um, that suggests to me that there are um, very significant problems that have remained unaddressed in these communities and in our cities for the preceding 30 years. Uh, and I think it points to a need for um, sort of long-term thinking about how we can build safe urban environments uh, that can both stand up to um, long-term social trends that may lead to rising crime and to uh, sudden shocks that may lead to rising crime. And uh, I know we're going to hear more about that from Hannah in the Brookings Institution. That was Ames Grobert with the Brennan Center for Justice. He spoke December 6th at an event sponsored by the Multnomah County Local Public Safety Coordinating Council entitled Violent Crime, Myths, Realities, and Interventions That Work. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Hannah Love is a research associate at the Brookings Institution. Um, so I really appreciated Ames' analysis looking at the national uh, level data that we have for the rise in murders between 2019 and 2020. Um, and then also the, the little bit of the preview from New York City as well. Um, I ran a similar analysis here where I looked at Chicago um, and Nashville and Kansas City and Baltimore to see, okay, when we're looking at national trends, you do see that places like Chicago had a 55% rise in, in gun homicides uh, between 2019 and 2020. But when you're just looking at sort of city, citywide statistics, what is that hiding? What don't we understand from those patterns? Um, and how can that cause us to maybe think about solutions um, in a different way? So I ran the numbers uh, for these cities. And the reason I chose these cities is it was just um, the best local data for, for gun homicides. And what you see really between um, 2019 and 2020 is not a widespread um, increase in gun homicides across the city of Chicago. What you really see is a worsening of gun homicides in areas on the south and west sides that already had very high levels of gun violence to begin with. Um, so there were some places in Chicago that have always remained relatively safe and untouched by gun 
gun violence, and they continue to remain relatively unsafe. Um, and then there are other places that have a long experience public and private sector disinvestment um, and sort of those drivers of poverty that we know can help um, contribute to crime. And those were the areas that really saw, saw the the brunt of the increases. Um, so I think it's useful and Ames already did this when, you know, we took a step back and looked at sort of in a historical context, what does this rise in murders really mean? Looking back at the nineties, we know that, you know, um, that crime rates today are not nearly where they were, but also let's look at within cities, um, kind of who is being impacted and what can we tell about whether this is a long-standing structural challenge of the same places are being impacted by high rates of gun violence um, versus something new that's happening. So I, I think the analysis that that I did really kind of points to the idea that um, the rise in violence that we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is pretty characteristic of the pandemic, was just a worsening of a long-standing structural issue that existed within cities for a very long time. Um, this is not new research. We know, we've known for a very long time, Dr. Sharkey and other people's work um, has pointed for decades that violence concentrated sp spatially um, within cities, within a, a select set of neighborhoods, and within that, a select set of streets. Um, sometimes that can cause people to come to conclusions about how to address concentrated violence in ways that might perhaps blame residents of those communities themselves. And so I think it's really important um, when we're talking about the spatial concentration of violence within specific neighborhoods to also talk about what the research says could be associated with what is causing that spatial concentration. Um, so there's been several studies that have shown even after adjusting for socio-demographic factors, um, places that were historically redlined continue to have some of the highest rates of gun violence um, today as well. And so that's controlling for other factors. And then there's also a wealth of research that shows that some of the physical um indicators of disinvestment, such as, um, you know, overcrowded housing um, or a high density of alcohol outlets and a low density of fresh food options, um, lots of vacant lots, these things that really kind of are the ramifications of neighborhood disinvestment, those are also heavily associated with higher rates of gun violence. Um, so I think it's important when we talk about the connection between place and gun violence that we really need to be clear about what possibly could be causing that connection. Uh, we all know that it's not as simple as one, one answer, but it, there is a wealth of research that kind of makes this connection between disinvestment and racial segregation um, and gun violence. So just taking that kind of little data snapshot, the rest of my, my presentation is kind of going to focus on, okay, what do we do understanding uh, that violence is a place-based issue. So how can we sort of shift our paradigm to focus on solutions that really recognize um, the way that place shapes people's access to safety? And I think that a useful model here um, and one that uh, a good friend of mine at Civil Rights Corps, Thea Sebastian, talks about a lot is the social determinants of safety. So in the public health field, there is a broad recognition that social determinants of health can have just as much of an impact on your life outcomes as some of some biological qualities. So this includes um, where you grow up, uh, your neighborhood and built environment, um, economic stability, all of these things can impact um, your life expectancy. And I think that when we look at the evidence, we see that there is a really similar um, 
a similar paradigm that can be applied to public safety here, where you grow up, your access to quality education, to economic stability, to um, a healthy neighborhood environment really does impact um, your access to safety. And when you are in places that you don't have access to those things, um, there are serious ramifications for your life expectancy as well. So a good colleague of mine at Brookings, um, his name is Andre Perry. He recently released something called the Black Progress Index, which is really looking at um, the different factors. Um, and you can see that on the right of my slide here that impact um, expe uh, life expectancy for residents in majority black neighborhoods. And so this is an example in cities. So this is an example from Dan Danville, Virginia, which is a smaller city. Um, in Virginia, so not the kind of place that we often think of, not the Chicago's of the world, um, but that has wrestled with serious gun violence problems for a very long time. And you can see that um, for residents living within this neighborhood, gun violence takes uh, an average of two years off of their life. Um, whereas other, other assets could actually um, add to their life expectancy, such as if there was to increase education rates, um, the ability to walk or bike, um, and the ability to sort of uh, have a good income. So I think thinking about sort of place-based access to safety through a lens of social determinants is, is quite helpful and can lead us to the right solutions. So here I'm just going to present a little bit of evidence um, that many scholars have focused on before about sort of what are these community-centered, bottoms-up solutions to addressing um, violence that can do so without inflicting harm. So Dr. Harvey focused a lot on um, about avoiding collateral consequences and about the importance of the police. I'm not going to touch on anything that is... Um, uh, involves the formal justice system. I'm really going to focus on these community-led uh, and community-based um, interventions that we that we see working. So one of the first ones is uh, to invest in the built environment. So there is plenty of research that shows um, that you can have significant reductions in, in gun violence uh, just by cleaning up vacant lots. There was a study out of Philadelphia that there was almost a 30% reduction um, in violent crime after a uh, RCT um, did a an experiment to basically see the impact of restoring vacant lots. There's also um, evidence that structural repairs to homes, so providing homeowners with grants to kind of make repairs to their home and improve the physical look of their neighborhood, um, can also lead to reductions in violent crime, um, as well as increasing access to parks and trees within neighborhoods. Um, so I think that this is one of the strongest um, strongest bodies of evidence that we have in sort of showing how the physical fabric of a neighborhood, um, by doing relatively small tweaks to that, uh, we can see significant um, improvements in safety outcomes. I will just give one example here um, from the work that I've been doing in Chicago. Uh, Chicago has been um, trying for quite some time to address the uh, place-based disparities in violence that they see on the South and West sides. They are doing a lot of different things right now. One of the things that they are doing is um, a place-based violence prevention initiative. So that's essentially prioritizing 15 neighborhoods within the South and West sides that have um, the highest rates of violence um, and violent victimization and providing them with grants to clean up lots, um, to do building uh, restorations, and uh, to preserve safe and affordable housing. So initiatives like this are pro popping up all across the country. Um, they're really exciting. I do want to note that $10 million is not enough to make up for centuries of <laughs> um, some of the uh, um, 
structural racism and, uh, you know, disinvestment that we've seen in these areas. So it's really exciting to see sort of um, local practitioners move in this direction. But I think there is questions about the amount of funding that is allocated uh, to these kinds of programs. I think I'll just give some other quick examples, because a lot of times when we talk about place-based solutions, people don't feel like it often um, is responsive enough to the urgency of the violence and the fear that they feel in their community. Um, and I think that that's very valid. Everyone wants to feel safe. Everyone wants to know that, um, you know, they can walk outside, they can walk to work, and they're not going to be shot. And so I think some of the biggest pushback that some of these non-carceral solutions have is, okay, these are going to take years. Uh, what can we do right now? And so I think um, throughout this presentation, I try to highlight um, different examples of interventions that can be done sort of in the shorter term and the longer term. And I think it's really important to note that there is no single answer here. You can't just clean up vacant lots in the south and west sides and expect um, gun violence to stop. These have to be a continuum of um, coordinated investments within communities, and they do have to be staggered. So for shorter kind of interventions, things that are relatively easy for local leaders to capitalize on, particularly with new, um, with ARPA dollars or with IJA dollars, is infrastructure improvements, um, increasing street lighting in uh, high crime neighborhoods, vacant lot cleanups, giving small grants to homeowners, um, and other things like tactical urbanism and placemaking, just kind of making places look and feel safe. And, um, you know, Ames mentioned James Jacob and Eyes on the Street. And so I think that this is something that's not new, but it's something that is getting uh, greater recognition as um, and greater evidence base behind being a, a real safety strategy with legs. I think in longer term, um, there are many more here that I could have put, I just put a few in, but there needs to be uh, serious considerations in, into sort of how do we develop community-driven processes to guide investment decisions within neighborhoods. So the example that I just gave from Chicago was a very top-down approach. Um, what would it look like if maybe we created new infrastructure to enable a bottoms-up approach where the community was truly leading in, in making some of those neighborhood improvement decisions? Um, how could we start thinking about revising incentive structures for where we actually develop downtown, um, where housing is developed, um, what levels of affordable housing um, are required, things like that. And then just some, some longstanding, really intense issues around lead pipes and, and other things. So there are many both short-term and long-term interventions in this bucket that are rooted in the evidence and in tandem can really make, make a large difference. Um, another critical aspect of promoting safety through non-carceral um, strategies is through efforts to kind of strengthen economic opportunity and access to jobs. So one of the most effective safety strategies that we have nationwide is actually summer job programs. Um, evidence consistently shows that they can reduce youth violence up to 45%, um, and they're relatively cheap and easy to implement. So I think that there, there's... Um, a huge evidence base behind that. And there's been some recognition from the Biden administration and others that this is a really um, important avenue for advancing community safety. There's also a relatively um, decent evidence base showing that cash transfers um, and UBI pilots can help um, uh, reduce violence. So that's also something that's really exciting given that we're starting to see these uh, universal basic income pilots uh, spread across um, different cities. Um, I will give a little example here from Danville, Virginia, which is the um, city in Virginia that I highlighted that has um, 
a significant gun violence challenge in which two years of, of residents' lives are on average taken from them due to gun violence. So using some of their ARPA dollars, I did a project where I went and talked to local leaders, um, leaders in Multnomah County as well, which was great, um, about how they use ARPA funds. And one thing that Danville, Virginia really focused on was sort of um, creating, making sure that everyday community spaces uh, can be places where people can connect and make um, connections for jobs. So they would have their workforce development staff come into barbershops and to other places where people like to hang out um, and just kind of build community relationships with them. And then they would also enable opportunities for youth to kind of um, take part within uh city meetings and serve as ambassadors. So not only was it, okay, there's this jobs component, there's also this, how do we empower youth to kind of take part in their government and see themselves as, as actors that can really make a meaningful difference um, within their community. Some other examples of what cities can do is really, like I said, youth summer job programs, mentorship programs, um, entrepreneurship support, also um, financial or economic resources for formerly incarcerated people. Um, that's really critical, um, as well as temporary cash relief pilots. Um, some of the longer term things that you can do is really targeting workforce development resources within cities to high crime neighborhoods. That's not something that we see often. Often workforce development programs are place blind or place neutral, um, which, uh, if that was changed, could kind of have a much larger impact on safety. Um, I also think, uh, coordinated efforts to improve job quality. There's a lot of evidence that shows increased pay, um, reduces uh, violent crime as well. Um, and then also, like I mentioned, universal basic income. There is an incredibly large body of evidence around um, community inter violence intervention and conflict mediation that I'm not gonna get into super in depth here because I think that CBI is one of the most um, it's a program that's seen a lot of uptake and a lot of buy-in from cities so far and from the White House as well, and a lot of encouragement to use federal dollars for CBI programs. So I'll put it here just to say that CBI programs are incredibly effective. Um, there are issues about perhaps paying staff adequately or kind of capacity and also, um, you know, some of the disruptions that Ames mentioned during the pandemic, but CBI programs are some of the best um, violence prevention and intervention programs that we have. Um, and then also I would say that there's a large body of research that shows that the presence of third spaces, so places like libraries or cafes or community centers um, that people can go and just hang out and make connections with one another are really uh, powerful in reducing violence as well. Um, I'll give an example from St. Louis here. I was uh, talking with um, their St. Louis Violence uh, Prevention Commission over there and asking them how they use their ARPA dollars. And one thing that I liked about what they did was that they created a, a summer event series, but they really tried to do so in a way that, um, if this was for youth, tried to do so in a way that empowered youth to make all decisions about what these events would be, how the money would be spent with very little oversight or accountability, basically just giving youth like, hey, tell us what you're gonna do, why you wanna do this, let's have some fun in the neighborhood. And this really came out of sort of a recognition, and you can see this in the quote up here that, um, youth were really saying that they didn't feel like they had access to their neighborhood. They didn't feel like they had the third spaces um, that were, you know, available to them because 
there were not as many third spaces in their neighborhood, or if there were, then they required money to spend time in, um, and that could be a barrier. So I think that this was interesting in St. Louis because it was really about recognizing we need youth to be able to carve out spaces in their neighborhood where they feel seen, where they feel like they can have fun and where they can feel safe. Um, so I thought that was a great example. Other shorter term and longer term examples, um, pop-up spaces, creative placemaking, expanding CBI programs. Um, I think that there is an entire body of research as well that I'm not really going to touch on too much here, but about kind of strengthening new institutions and response systems that are non-carceral and fully outside of um, the criminal justice system that can really sort of, you know, address conflict, not at the point that CBI um, workers necessarily do, but when we're actually in crisis. And so I, there are many researchers that are focused on that. Um, but I think that that's something that longer term many cities are adopting. Um, and then also just increasing access to third spaces. So these are solutions. And I think across all of these um, these buckets, these are solutions that require both the public and the private sector to take part in. I think that's something that is interesting that we don't always talk about um, and the private sector's role in sort of uh, advancing community safety. Finally, the last bucket of evidence that I'll talk about um, really draws from the research of uh, Patrick Sharkey, which is just showing that uh, the presence of nonprofit organizations within communities can lead to reductions in violent crime, um, particularly sort of more grassroots uh, organizations. So I think that there needs to be a broad recognition amongst um, federal, state, and city leaders. Essentially, how do we make sure that we're getting resources to strengthen these institutions or to maybe prop up new institutions and communities that maybe don't have them and really looking at the nonprofit sector um, as, a, as a means to address violence as well. I think that the example that I was most impressed by when I was doing my research on the ARPA funds was the state of Minnesota. Um, they uh, allocated 16 a uh, million of their dollars to kind of making grants available to more grassroots organizations. And they had a really um, intentional process in which they were, they had um, requirements about the leadership, whether or not it was BIPOC leadership of the organization, sort of the size of the organizations, um, their ability to respond to grants, and they actually helped hire grant writers and really tried to make an effort to how do we get these dollars out as a state level agency? How do we get these dollars out to these small one to two people led grassroots nonprofits that maybe we don't even know about? And so I thought that they had some innovative ideas on that. Um, and yep, uh, just a few more examples of other things that can be done. Um, TA for grassroots organizations, embedding equity requirements um, in grant making, uh, reducing reporting barriers. And then finally, I think on the long term, really thinking about how are we creating new institutions that are devoted to coordinating all of the different um, cross-sectoral activities that go into promoting community safety. So there is economic development that needs to go on here. There's community development. There is infrastructure. Um, there is so much that needs to happen to promote place-based solutions to safety that I think it's really how do we reimagine what our institutions are to make them more um, cross-disciplinary and make them talk to each other a little bit better, which we haven't historically uh, always done. So just in conclusion, I think my main point is we really do see the connection between the physical characteristics of a neighborhood um, and its patterns of investment and violence. And so I really think just given that, that connection, I think starting 
there. Um, while also doing some of the many things that Dr. Harvey talked about, I think this is really where we see some of the most promising and undervalued strategies. I think that we've seen some lip service go to these strategies, but not the meaningful dollar investment that would be needed to make them work. That was Hannah Love with the Brookings Institution. She spoke on December 6th at an event sponsored by the Multnomah County Local Public Safety Coordinating Council entitled Violent Crime, Myths, Realities, and Interventions That Work. Again, you can find a link to that event and to the video at the Multnomah County website, multco.us slash LPSCC. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. So long.